Oscar De La Hoya, a modern boxing icon. I was born to be a fighter. During a pro career spanning nearly two decades, he captured 10 world titles in six different weight divisions and became one of his generation's most beloved fighters. Life away from boxing, it's like, what life? 24-7, that was my life. But behind his golden boy image, De La Hoya has struggled with addiction and infidelity. How were you able to manage it during your career? I, I even knew how to lie to myself. I would convince myself, no, this is right. After his 2009 retirement, public knowledge of his behavior forced him to confront the disease for the first time. Yeah, I've cheated on my wife and I've done bad things in my life for, for reasons that, you know what, I'm finding out who I really am. And it's a battle that continues to this day. I'm treating this fight as if I'm facing Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali, Roberto Duran, all at once inside the ring. We sat down in 2014 at the Golden Boy offices in Los Angeles and began with the first fight that sparked his Hall of Fame career. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You've had so many uh, amazing stories, some really funny, uh, a couple a little more serious. The first is when your car died on the highway. Mm. Um, what do you remember from that? Wow. Um, I, remember, I remember peeing my pants. <laughs> That's one thing I remember. Like literally? Literally. <laughs> well, because here, here I was, and I'm not gonna mention the make of the car <laughs> and get anybody in trouble, you know? So here I am in a brand new car and I was driving, all of a sudden the car just, all these lights are going off and the car slowly, you know, it just going 50 miles per hour, 45 miles per hour, 40 miles per hour. And I'm thinking, wow, I, and I couldn't move the steering wheel and uh, I'm trying to turn it on, it won't go on. And so, and this was around maybe one o'clock in the morning. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, let me find my cell phone, you know, so I can call somebody. And I always carry my cell phone. Well, I couldn't find my cell phone for some strange reason. And so I'm, I'm now going 20 miles per hour and I'm looking at the, uh, the rear view mirror and I see this car coming so fast. I mean, he had to be going about a hundred miles per hour and he's coming towards me and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he's gonna hit me. And so I, he, he, he veers off to the right and catches the, 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 the tail light on the right hand side, boom. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm gonna die here. I'm gonna die here. And, and he just takes off. And so now finally the car just stops. And so I'm panicking, I'm thinking, okay, what do I do, what do I do? Right. And there was no shoulder lane, no nothing. I, just, I was just right on the fast lane. So I'm thinking, okay, you know what? I'm gonna get out of the car and run out. So I'm waiting for the perfect moment. I'm looking, you know, see if any cars are coming. A few are coming by, screaming just fast. And so I, I find the perfect opportunity. I run across the freeway, and as I get to the other side, this big Mack truck just crushes my car. It just crushes it. Like there's no tomorrow. It looked like an accordion. You know, and uh, and then there's a pileup. I mean, uh, maybe oh, no. twenty car pileup. You know, and I can see smoke and fire and flames. And then the the people from the cars they started getting off from the crashed uh, from the scene. And it was funny because you know there was this one kid. I remember him clearly. He must have been a teenager. He uh, his nose is broken. He's bleeding everywhere. And he's like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, I'm hurt. And so I'm, I'm, I go up to him, are you okay? And he's like, and he, and he just freezes. And the first thing he says is, oh my gosh, I can now say Oscar De La Hoya <laughs> broke my nose. <laughs> and oh my, I was, I was relieved. <laughs> I was kind of like smiling and laughing, but at the same time I was just petrified. And thank God everybody was okay, uh, nobody died. Um, a few people had to go to the hospital, but yeah, that's the story of the, uh, the car stalling. Did you ever find out what went wrong with the car? Never did. Okay. 
Never did. Uh, how about uh, Mario Lopez and the ingrown hair? <laughs> wow, you really do your research, huh? <laughs> so I'm fighting in San Diego, my third or fourth fight. And this was the Thursday before Saturday, which I, where, where I was going to fight on Saturday. I have this pain on my leg, and uh, and I can't move. I can't. I can't walk. So we call a doctor. Um, he arrives that night uh, on Thursday night, and um, and uh, he looks at it and he tells me, "Boy, you have. I mean, seriously, it's 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 a serious. I have to go in there and dig whatever you have in there, and uh, because this is serious, it's, it's something's getting infected in there." And I was like, what do you mean you have to operate or go in there and dig, dig what? So he tells me, and, and this was an old doctor, older doctor, maybe 85 years old, 86 years old, and he was shaking too. Oh, that's great. So I go, okay, let's do it. He's literally, he, he had to cut maybe, I would say a quarter size, you know, this round of like a quarter in my leg, and he had to go up maybe about this deep into my leg um, he got he got this bandage and he stuffed it in there, you know. So and he said, "Oh, it'll heal by itself, you know. Um, <laughs> it'll heal on its own." And uh, are these doctors vetted before they operate on you? I I, I don't think he was. I don't, I don't know if he was a doctor. I don't know. But um, long story short, he uh, he told us it was an ingrown hair. I can't walk anymore, I can't fight. So I'm thinking I have to make a decision. Am I gonna fight on Saturday or not? And I couldn't walk. I mean, he, he left me crutches. The doctor left me some crutches there because I couldn't walk. So I had met Mario Lopez that Thursday morning. And uh, so I got his number and so we, you know, he, we exchanged information. So I decided not to fight. So I said, you know what? If I'm not gonna fight, I'm gonna go have a good time. So uh, who do I call? I call Mario Lopez. He loved boxing, uh, you know, that's his sport. He loves boxing. And uh, he was like, sure, I'll be, I'll be over, uh, you know, in a quickie, in a, in a jippy, and uh, let's go to Tijuana. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow, is this a good idea? So we go to Tijuana, well, next thing you know, we come back at eight in the morning on Friday, and we're, we're getting back, stumbling in, right. you know, me with crutches, you know, with this gauze on my, in my leg. Um, my managers at the time were waiting in the front door because I didn't know what was there. They were waiting, and they were so mad. What are you doing? What's going on? You have to weigh in. You have to weigh in at, at 12 o'clock. You have to fight, you cannot do this. Well, finally they, they convinced me to fight. So I weighed in, I don't know how I got to the weigh-in. I weighed in um, at 12 o'clock, 12.30. And uh, I ended up fighting. I put these bicycle shorts first and then the real, the, the boxing trunks. That way the gauze won't fall off out of the, the hole that I had. Luckily, I stopped the guy like in three rounds or else I knew he would have beat me because I was getting so tired, you know, from that night that I went out with Mario Lopez, you know. How about uh, 2000, New York, fight at Madison Square Garden, uh, and you decide you want to get a tanning bed <laughs> in preparation for the fight? Oh, my gosh. So, so... I'm fighting at Madison Square Garden, okay? I mean, the mecca of boxing, right. you know? And, um, and image is everything. I have to look good, you know? And I don't know if it was, it must have been the winter because I, I, I had no tan. I always had to have a tan, you know? Because girls love that, <laughs> you know? I found this little tanning machine that tans your face, you know? Um, so you can have a nice, you know, nice complexion and everything, you know. So I get it FedExed, gets to the hotel, and so I'm reading the instructions, and uh, it says, okay, um, you know, stay in front of the, the machine, wait for it to turn on, you know, you see these red lights just, you know. You have to wear these little goggles. So... I thought to myself, well, I don't want to. I don't want to have those circles around my eyes. You know, I want to just have a nice tan. You know, all around. You know, just a, a perfect, perfect tan. You know, 
So I didn't wear the goggles and I put my face there. <laughs> and they told, the, the, the instructions tells you, okay, keep your face away from the machine. Um, you know, don't get closer to it. You know, you have to be maybe uh, about maybe 12 inches from the, from the machine. So I said, you know what? I'll maybe get a darker tan if I get closer. So I was maybe literally like three inches from the, from the machine. And it tells you, you know, don't stay longer than, no more longer than five minutes. So I said, you know what, I'll, I'll stay maybe like 20. So I was there, you know, and, uh, and it was late at night. So finished that process, I went to bed and I woke up in the morning, I couldn't open my eyes. And that was, and that was Friday before the fight. Oh, I couldn't great. open my eyes. I just, I was so swollen. I mean, my eyes were shut. I couldn't open them. I had a nice tan, <laughs> but I couldn't open my, I couldn't open my eyes. So I had to go to the weigh-in. I weighed in with glasses. At least you um, looked good for the fight. I looked good for the fight, you know, but that was the, uh, yeah, we almost canceled the fight because I wanted to look good having a, you know, with a tan. Yeah. And did, did you end up winning? I ended up winning. But every time he would hit my face, it would burn. It would literally burn because I was so burnt. Every time he hit my face, I told, I told my corner people, just smear Vaseline everywhere because <laughs> my face is just so hot. Um, I luckily stopped him like in seven rounds, so we ended up winning that fight. So who eats two dozen oysters the night before a fight? <laughs> I do. Apparently. I'm fighting. I assume that was a one-time thing, though, not a... It was a one-time okay. thing. So we're opening up the Staples Center, the first boxing event ever. I'm fighting Sugar Shane Mosley, who is um, I've known since we were kids. So on Friday, the night before the, uh, the fight, you know, you weigh in. And uh, when I made the weight... When I made the actual weight, I, you know, we, you tell your teammate, let's go celebrate. Right. Let's go back to my stomping grounds in East LA, go to this little favorite Mexican little restaurant and, and uh, hey, let's get some mariachi and just have a good time. Because after you make the weight, you can eat as much as you want. Whatever you want. you hit the weight you need for the fight, so, right? So, so in the meantime, my, my nutritionist, my, my trainers are telling me, no, let, let's stick to our diet till the last fight. No, 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 let's go celebrate. You know, I made weight. I'm happy. You know, all my family's going to watch me fight. I'm excited. We go to this little restaurant. Um, everybody orders, you know, their food. And I say, bring me two dozen oysters. So I eat the oysters. And, um, and that night, boy, I remember it clearly. That night, I heard this rumbling in my stomach. I was like, no, no way. That whole night, I didn't sleep. I was sick like there's no tomorrow. I ended up weighing two pounds less than what I weighed in the actual weigh-in on Friday dur during the fight. Were you concerned you wouldn't be able to fight? In oh, the I was concerned that the following morning, um, I, I was convinced I wasn't going to fight. I can't face Sugar Shane Mosley, yeah. who was undefeated, who was nobody wanted to fight. I can't, I can't do it like this. So finally, somebody convinced me. Hey, go up! It's look, got all these, all these stars, celebrities, and you know you have to do it, you know. So I go out there, and uh, I was praying and praying and praying. He wouldn't hit me in the stomach. I was praying, and uh, yeah, I got through it, but I did lose the fight. So we, we had the opportunity earlier today to uh, visit uh, the, the charter school, which is where you actually, near where you went to school and right. near the area uh, you grew up back in the day. How would you describe the area that you grew up in when you were younger? We grew up in a very, yeah, tough, difficult neighborhood, you know. Um, how close were Gang you to infested, violence? Um, I was very close, and I mean, there was few, several inf incidents where, where I mean, I've been held up at gunpoint, not just by one gun, but by several guns in my head. I was first of all, I was caught up in my boxing and my fighting. You know, ever since I was five, I started boxing. So my my routine, my daily routine was wake up early in the morning. Ever since I can remember, 
I'm talking about three, four in the morning. Hmm. Run around my neighborhood streets, go to school, go to the gym, and go to bed. That was my routine for I don't know how long, how many years. So I, I didn't have time to you know, get involved in drugs or gangs or this and that. You know, it's, it, it was just no time. Yeah. To tell about when ski masked men did jump you with guns. I, uh, I was walking down uh, to, to a, a girlfriend's house that, that, that I had back then in high school. And I, it was maybe around 8 o'clock at night, 7.30. And so I'm walking, and this truck pulls, pulls over, and eight men with, most of them were, were wearing ski masks, but I get, they must have been like seven or eight guns to my head. Give me your camera, give me your, you know, your jacket, uh, give us your wallet. And so I'm like, yeah, please, you know, just, I didn't say don't kill me. I was just praying or thinking, please don't, right. don't kill me. And it happened so fast. And I run back home and my dad answers the door and he has my camera, he has my wallet, doesn't have my jacket, but he tells me, hey, your friends just, your friends just uh, dropped this off right now. What's going on? What happened? And I was just like, Dad, nothing happened. Oh, man. oh wow, great. My, well, I have good friends, you know, wow, they dropped this off, you know. Well, it so happened that I, I find out the following morning that there was a, a couple of friends um, in that little gang there uh, that I knew, mm -hmm. that I grew up with, that held the guns on my head. They just didn't know who I was until they saw the wallet, wow. the ID, um, because it was so dark. Yeah. You know? um, but yeah, that's what happened. And what do you recall from living off of food stamps at times when you were growing up? What I recall was was just happiness. I recalled, I recalled just just being happy with my family with. But, but you were, yeah, I mean, from reading your book, at times you were a little embarrassed to go to the grocery store and go up and pay well, with them, right? Well, my mom would give me, um, you know, $10, for instance, or $5 worth of food stamps and, you know, go buy some milk, go buy some eggs, some tortillas. And we used to live just literally steps away from a little food mart there and um, so I would go you know happy as can be because I knew I can buy like a little candy or something for myself right. you know sneak one in there <laughs> and so I would have to I would see the, the the convenience store full of people I would sometimes wait 10 15 20 minutes in order for everyone to get out and empty the store um, so I can go in there uh, and pay with these food stamps because it, it was it was I didn't understand, you know, um, I didn't understand, uh, I guess, the value, the value of, 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 of you know, that, that, the food stamp, you know, the, the, what my mom was, was, was doing for us, I guess, you know, she was, she was, she just wanted to put food on our table, you know, and we had to get food stamps and that government cheese, you know, and the carns of milk that we used to receive, you know, I, I just didn't understand, you know, um, but there was this one incident where one of my friends told me, ah, it made fun of me. Look, you get food stamps. You guys are poor. You guys are so poor. And, and you know, once, once your little friend tells you that, you just you feel embarrassed. Right. As a kid, you feel right. embarrassed. And uh, so I would have to wait, yeah, 20, 30 minutes, um, waiting for the stores to just empty out so I can pay with these food stamps because I sometimes felt embarrassed. After you became successful, why was it important to you to carry a food stamp in your wallet? The reminder, the reminder um, to never forget where I came from. You know, it's 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 those memories are instilled in me, which um, which are you know those memories that that just that made me who I am today. What's responsible for getting you into boxing? Um, a bloody nose from from a cousin. We used to have gatherings at, at, a, at an uncle's house um, when I was five, six years old, every weekend, family gatherings. And for fun, all the uncles would lace up the gloves and fight. So that was our fun. That was our... And so we, as kids, we used to watch and just cheer everybody on, you know. And, um, and these fights used to get really, I mean, serious. So then one day, 
in one of these gatherings, one of my uncles, uh, he says, why don't we get the kids to fight? That'll be fun. So once he said that, I was like, uh, like I went like running somewhere like to hide, you know, I don't want, I don't want them to pick me. So I said, let's have Oscar and, and George was his name. He was two years older than me. Let's have Oscar and George fight. And I remember I was scared and crying. And so George hits me in the nose and I start bleeding and I start crying. I run to my father. And the first thing my father says is, yo, you guys watch, you guys wait. I'm going to take him to the gym and just give me a few months and, uh, and we'll have a rematch. So that's how, I, that's how I was introduced to boxing. It's, to what extent do you think your father was too strict? Um, I think throughout my whole childhood, I, I always felt he was too strict. Um, I always felt that he was, I guess, living through me, you know? So, because he was an ex-fighter himself, so... I always felt, well, here's a man that really didn't accomplish his, his goals inside the ring, you know. Uh, he wanted to become a champion, he never did. He wanted to be, you know, a gold medalist, he never did, you know. Um, so here's a man who was pushing me every single day. And I didn't understand what he was trying to do at the time, but I just felt, man, this man is just so demanding. And, and, and so pushy and I didn't have a choice back then but to listen to him obviously because he's my father and I respect him but now that I understand I appreciate it you do I appreciate it so much why because he I mean he instilled a lot of great qualities in me a lot of bad ones too but I, I appreciate and, and look at the good ones you know um I appreciate, you know, what all the long hours of, uh, of work, you know, um, from waking up at three in the morning. I mean, he used to knock in my door three, four in the morning before he went to work. Wake up. You have to go run. What was his training schedule like then? Well, training schedule was, you know, waking up at that at that early, three, four in the morning, and he would go to work for, wow, 12, 13, sometimes 14 hours, and I would have to wait for him at home, and, uh, and then he would take me to the gym. And so we would get out of the gym late. Maybe there was time to do some schoolwork, maybe, but right to bed, and the following morning, same thing. So that went on for years. You're, uh, I was speaking to your brother, Joel, and he said as you got older, he felt that you started to begin to resent the fact that you didn't have really a childhood growing up. Um, you mentioned bad qualities that your father instilled in you. You know, how much do you think you were able to enjoy life growing up? I, I, I just didn't enjoy it, you know. Um... Life, life, life out of, out of, you know, away from boxing, it's like, what life? I, I didn't have a life. It was boxing, that's it, 24-7. That was my life. You know, I was, I was born to be a fighter. I was bred to be a fighter. You know, um, that's, that's the bottom line. And um, yeah, there, there, were, there was a period of time where I resented that uh, till recently. You know. Till recently? Yeah, absolutely. Why did it change recently? Because I've, I've, I've come to the conclusion and, and I've made amends with, 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 with my father. You know, I've accepted the fact that he was just trying to do good for me. He was trying to, he was trying to, to, um, to just help, you know, and he was trying to create this, this champion, you know, and, um, that's all it was, you know. So I, I forgive him for everything that he did, and you know, it's it's it, it was it was for for my own good. When was the first time he told you he was proud of you? I'm still waiting for it. Really? I'm still waiting for it. Um, and and that was a that was one of those 
big resentments that I that I I think that's the last one that I still have is that I'm still waiting for that acceptance, you know? Like, son, you did good. I love you. I'm waiting for that. Why do you think that hasn't happened? I believe he does love me. I believe he he does want to tell me, but he, look, I understand that he's a man that grew up in a very tough environment, you know, that whole machismo thing, you know, that that a lot of Mexican men have, you know, and or Latino men or um, but I understand it. It's okay. I would love to hear it. I would love to hear that, you know, coming that, you know, from my father, like, son, I'm proud of you. Great job. I love you. That would be, that would be pretty cool. How has that impacted how you parent? Oh, my gosh. I, I tell my kids I love them every single day. Every single day. I mean, it's, I have, I have a lot of flaws. Um, I'm just learning how to grow up myself. See, because my life, my life was kind of like put on hold. I don't know when, maybe when I was 12, 13 years old, because I was focusing so much on my boxing, on my training, on, and life, life, life just happened. You know, the way I was taught in the streets, I wasn't taught by, I wasn't taught how to live by my father or my mother. I wasn't taught by them. I was taught how to, uh, you know, live through, through, through the streets, through acquaintances that I had, friends. That's, that's how I was taught. I want to talk uh, briefly first about your mother since we, uh, you know, just spoke about your father. We, we went to um, earlier today the, the, the hospital, which uh, now bears her name. Uh, and she passed away of breast cancer, uh, 39 years old. How close were you and your mom when you were growing up? We, we were close. We, um, she was my number one supporter. Um, but boy, do I wish, do I wish, you know, I, I can, Again, give her a hug, you know, tell her I love her. I never told her I love her. And, and you said that was one of your biggest regrets, never? I mean, she's my mom, you know, and not hearing it from her. I mean, that hurts. That's painful. And I've come to terms about it now, just till recently because I, 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 I've made amends to her, you know. Um, I have forgiven her. For never having said that? For never having said that, for raising me the way she did. I mean, she gave me a lot of love. She, she was my mom. She, she, you know, it's like she held down the fort, you know, and she took care of us, but Emotionally, I missed out on a lot. Emotionally, you know. Um, yeah, and it's 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 painful, but I think I think all that pain that I felt throughout all these years, you know, getting inside the ring and when that first bell rang, boy, did I just unload on my opponents because of frustration, because of anger, you know. What do you recall from when she told you she had cancer? I was mad. I was angry. At what? At her for not telling me sooner. Because she had hid it from you for two years? Yeah, for a long time. And, and, and once she told us, she, then she passed. You know? That quickly? That quickly. So I was angry. I was so pissed off at life, you know, at her. You know, why do you, why do you keep something like that from us, you know? What was that conversation like? Well, it wasn't a conversation with her physically. 
it was me having the conversation with her after she had passed. You know, I remember going to her grave and crying and yelling and, and angry, telling her, you know, why? Why? You know, now what? Now what are we going to do? She passed away uh, reasonably close to uh, the, the 92 Olympics. Mm -hmm. How much pressure did you put on yourself to win gold in those Olympics? Now that I think about it, it's, boy, was it a lot of pressure. Um, I still don't know how I did it. It was all like a blur. Um, I remember that was, that was the story, you know. Um, here's, here's a kid from East LA doing it for his mother. You know, oh, he better do it for his mother. You know, that, that, that was her dying wish. And that was the story. And that right. was the story. Right. I have no idea how I did it. Um, I remember qualifying for the team because after she had passed, I, I decided I just didn't want to fight anymore. And, um, and one day I just said, you know what, no. If she was here, I'm, I'm, she would want me to fight and continue. And so I qualified for the team and I went to Barcelona and um, I remember doing nothing, not interacting with anybody, not leaving my room. The dorm for maybe 10 people was maybe this size or smaller. And I remember just staying there and just, I don't know if I was focusing or I was just numb. It's a terrible way to go through the Olympics. Now that I think about it, it was terrible. And it happened so fast. But then next thing you know it, I'm on top of that podium winning the gold medal. And I couldn't cry, I couldn't be happy, I, I was numb. And I remember it clearly, there, the national anthem is playing, I don't know what to think. So... And this is after you'd won? This was after I had won. I get out of the ring with my gold and uh, they interview me on, on, on live TV. Mm -hmm. And I just, they ask me the first question and I just start crying. All these emotions just, I, I couldn't talk. I just, I just couldn't talk. I, all I remember saying is I'm sorry for crying. You know, I'm sorry for crying. And you said that was both the happiest and the saddest moment of mm -hmm. your life, winning the uh, Olympic gold. Why, after you got back to the States, did you decide to go to the cemetery? Well, I, I decided to, uh, to go to the cemetery and just and give her the gold medal and, and, and tell her, you know, here it is. Here's your, here's your gold. Here's, here's the, the gold medal I promised you, you know. And I retired. I retired from, at that moment, I retired from boxing. I, I didn't want to fight anymore. Mission accomplished, you know. Here, I, there it is. No more boxing. I can retire. That's it. I wasn't thinking about the money, the this, the that, the things, the, no, it was all about winning the gold medal. Doing it for, for honor, you know, for pride. It wasn't for money, it wasn't for business, it wasn't for anything, it was just accomplishing that, that, that specific goal, that dream that I had. When you were 12 years old, did you really sign an Olympics poster? I did. What, I did. You, what did you sign? I, put, I signed my name, Oscar De La Hoya, Olympic champion. Olympic champion, that, I mean that was, I, I've always been a very ambitious person. I've always believed in myself, no matter what, you know, no matter what. I've always believed in myself. So you're a little over 5'10", but you fought as light as 130 pounds. What's involved with getting down to that weight? Uh, wow. A lot of suffering, a lot of pain. Like, what, what do you, you actually do? Um, there were days where I would just suck on an orange, you know, while I was training. Uh -huh. You know, here you have an athlete who's supposed to, 
you know, you're supposed to eat the right foods, you know. You and consume a lot of calories when you're training. Consume a lot of calories because you're training so hard mm -hmm. and, and you're, you're sweating. And uh, um, I would eat an orange a day for about a week, literally, um, just to make weight. I remember in one fight, I, uh, I was struggling to make 130 pounds, okay, my first world title. So I get on the scale and I'm just tired as can be and I'm exhausted and I just, just want to get off the scale already. So the other promoters, uh, uh, the fighter, uh, they tell me, no, you have to weigh in the day of the fight, you know, the following day. It's in the rules. And it was, it was in the rules. So I was just so angry and I just didn't know what to do and I was just gonna give up again, just forget it. I lose. I ended up weighing, I ended up losing, yeah, I ended up weighing two, 127 pounds that, that morning because I couldn't eat anything. Wow. And uh, I don't know how I fought. I don't know how I, I ended up beating the kid in the 10th round, but. How much do you think about food when you're eating only an orange a day? <sighs> you're thinking about food constantly. You're thinking about chocolate. You're thinking about, I was a huge McDonald's guy. <laughs> huge, loved McDonald's. I would always think about Big Macs, loved Big Macs. Um, now you probably just got an endorsement. Yeah, well, I had McDonald's endorsement for many years, but it's funny because it's like I was so disciplined, you know, and I was trained to be this way that, hey, if you have to starve, you starve, you know. You can think about it, sure, absolutely. Yeah, but you have to suffer. In order to win, in order to fight, in order to, to be champion, you have to suffer. That's, that's what I was taught. Yeah. Before a fight, you apparently sweat a lot, have uh, butterflies in your stomach. I explain the feeling. I, you, you don't want to fight. You don't want to fight? No, you just don't want to fight. You don't want to leave the dressing room. And is this every fight? And it's not, it's not that I'm scared. It's just that I'm nervous. And it's in every single fight. In one occasion, um, the butterflies were like, I mean, <laughs> I felt they were like moth, just like huge. I, I, I just, it was, it, was, it was hurting so much that I just, I couldn't get out of the dressing room. I just didn't want to. I couldn't stand up from the couch I was sitting on. Once they called me up to go up in the ring, I just couldn't get up. I was so, I was just nervous. But once the first bell rings, then it's like game on. Here we go. Butterflies just go flying away and you're not feeling nervous. Now, now it's like, now it's like, okay, let's do this. So you're naturally left-handed. Uh, why were you made into a righty? It was tough for my first trainer to, to hold the mitts for me. It was, it was just difficult for, he couldn't figure it out because I was lefty so as, at five years old, um, he just he, he couldn't figure out how to train me. So he said, why don't you switch over and put your left foot forward and, and just have that, that normal stance, you know, the orthodox, uh, the, 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 you know, that normal stance there like that, right-handed. And, and that's how, I, that's how I, I started training and fighting. And the uh, best thing ever that can happen to me because now... Now my left hand is a strong, you know, that strong left jab uh, is my best punch uh, in boxing. It's just, it's, it's my secret weapon, you know. And for a while you trained by chopping wood and you ran with boots on. Yeah. Uh, how did you find that helped you? Or did it? <sighs> I never understood why I was chopping wood. I mean, made for a good fire, you know, and then those cold uh, yeah, right. winter nights, you know, and Big, uh, Bear. and Big Bear. I never understood why I was chopping wood and why I was running with, you know, four-pound boots 
on each leg for miles and miles and I just never understood it until until I got in that ring you know on fight night and I would just glide I'd just glide and box and light as a feather and my punches would come out so fast then I would be like wow you know the chopping of the wood the running with the boots yeah it, it helps uh, rehab and addiction. Um, I know this is your, you know, first interview since uh, coming out of rehab, and I really appreciate you, uh, you know, trusting me and trusting us to uh, do this. How much of an addictive personality do you think you have? Well, let's just put it this way: I, I can't have a bowl of cereal. I have to have the whole box, you know. Yeah? Yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> Depends on the cereal. <laughs> um, I, I was introduced to alcohol at an early age. And um, I, I've, for some reason, been in love with it ever since. And um, it's, it, it, it took over my life. It, it, it just, it's, it's slowly but surely, it's like, it's destroying my life, you know, and um, I don't feel any shame in in saying and coming out with it that, yeah, you know what, I am an alcoholic, and I do need help, and uh, I am getting help, and life is amazing. Right now, life is amazing. It's incredible. I'm living life right now, wow. It's incredible. My kids are happy. My wife is happy. I'm happy. But it's a struggle. It's an everyday struggle. This is the toughest fight of my life. But I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it because it's, it, it's made me a better human being. Understanding my character defects. Understanding who I really am. You know, my childhood. How I grew up. I mean, we can sit down here for hours and hours and hours and I can explain to you how I grew up, you know? And then people will understand of where I'm coming from. But look, life knocked me down hard. Hard to a point where I just didn't want to get back up. But that's too easy. That's too easy. To stay down, it's too easy. I have to rise and get up and fight even harder you know that's what I have to do for my for myself first because if I don't do it for me then I can't do it for my family and my kids you know I do it for me and then I can do it for my family you know if I don't do this then I have nothing so yeah this is the toughest fight of my life you went to rehab once in 2011 and again in uh, 2013 for drug and alcohol abuse and infidelity. Um, you know, I know you're married. How challenging, how tough has the process been for, you know, one of your loved ones, your wife? Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, my wife is such a such an angel and she's such a blessing and my wife um, she's been through so much we've been through so much you know and she's still there you know one day I I was sitting down on the couch and she tells me um, she tells me you know what I love you I love you but, but the only reason why I'm with you is because of God she told me like that. And, you know, I, all I can do is just start crying. And, and She believes in me. And she's still with me. And she's right there by my side like a rock. I just have to believe in myself, you know. Yeah, I've cheated on my wife. And I've done bad things in my life for, for reasons that, you know what, I'm finding out of who I really am. I'm not a perfect person. It's been a big problem, but these last months have been unbelievable because I've been taking action. I'm tired of people picking me up. 
I'm gonna get up on my own, you know, and do this. How did you tell your wife about your wrongdoing? Well, when you're a public person, a public figure, it's people are gonna know. And, and unfortunately, she found out through, through the media. You know, I, then, then I have to come and confess to her the things I did. You know, to have a clear conscience, okay, you know, this is what, I, this is what happened, you know? Which was difficult, which was tough, you know? I mean, breaking her heart again? It's tough, it's difficult. I, I, I hate myself for it, you know? Putting her through all that stuff, you know? Now what? Okay, she's still there. Now what are you gonna do? Well, I'm gonna man up. I'm gonna do whatever it takes. I'm gonna go through any lengths to change who I am as a person, to grow as a person, to be a father, to be a husband, to be responsible. It's what I want to do because I have people who love me, who care for me, you know? who are willing to pick me up, but I don't want to be picked up anymore. I'm gonna stand up on my own and fight for what's right. And what's right is my family. You know, looking back over the years, there have been some harsh accusations that have been thrown your way from mm -hmm. womanizing to using prostitutes, sex with minors, even rape. What responsibility do you accept for some of what's gone on in the past? Well, I mean, obviously, there's been many accusations. I'm, first of all, a target. And I'm a target because I put myself in that situation. I take responsibility for, 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 for what I did. I take responsibility. That disease, that, that freaking alcohol is a killer for me. I'm just talking about myself, you know? It makes me do things that I just don't like. It's not me, it's not, it's not the person who I am, you know? I know I'm a good father. I know I'm a good husband. I know I'm a good person. And that's why when I say I cannot take one drink, I just can't even take one more drink for the rest of my life. That's what I'm gonna do and that's what I have to do in order to keep my family, in order to, in order to keep living, you know? I'm just, I'm just blessed that, I'm just blessed that people stood by my side. The most important people in my life have stood by my side. I, I understand from talking to a couple people close to you, the, the first time you went to rehab, it seemed from the conversations with them, it was almost in a way because you were forced, because you mm. were somewhat in jeopardy of losing your marriage. Mm -hmm. But the second time you went, um, they said they really knew it was serious because you made the decision to go. It was something that you wanted. Is right. that true? It's true. It's very true. Um, you know, it's the first time it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll go, I'll go and, uh, you know, get that heat off my back, you know. Um, everything will be fine after several days, a few weeks, whatever. Um, but you don't do it, you don't do it because you want to, you know, you don't do it because, because you know you need help, you know, you do it because other people want it for you. Just, it just doesn't work that way. How were you feeling about yourself emotionally this time when you made the decision to go? Um, I was I was at the lowest point of my of, of my life. I, I was I was feeling like I just didn't belong. You know, I I don't want to be here. I couldn't take it. I was feeling like a coward. Why? Wow. It was overwhelming. My world was coming down. I couldn't lie anymore. You know, I've been exposed. You know, every time I take that drink, there he goes again. You know? Um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was in a bad place. And at some point or points you contemplated suicide, you said, why? Oh, I don't know how many times, because that's the easy way out. 
you know, staying down is, is the easy way out, you know? How much consideration did you give to it when you were really at your worst? Or I'm your... too much of a coward to go through it. I've thought about it many times, absolutely. And, and you felt like you were a coward by not doing it? Yeah. Why? Because I never did it. I just, I could never, and I could never come close to, to holding a knife or holding a, whatever it is, you know? I, I just, I, I, I can't. But I loved feeling sorry for myself, you know? I loved feeling sorry for myself. That's, I, I, I not that I had a satisfaction in, in, in feeling that, but it's like, you know, poor me, poor me, you know? It's like, I, I just, I, I loved that feeling for some reason. You know, I want people to feel sorry for me. Don't you know who I am? I have feelings. I was, I was, I don't know, it's like, I just didn't know what I was thinking. I was, I was, at the lowest point of my life. What, what went wrong between when you first got out of rehab in 2011 and when you made the decision to go back a couple of years later? I, I just didn't accept that, that, that I had a problem. I couldn't accept it. And I, I understand from talking to, uh, you know, one of your close friends, even during your career, uh, you know, you, you had a problem both was, you know, substance abuse and infidelity. Um, how were you able to manage it during your career? My 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 life was just a big lie. I knew how to manipulate. I knew how to lie. I knew how to cover up. I knew. I'll tell you one thing: it was so exhausting. It's just so exhausting doing all that. Now that was. I think about it, absolutely. Because here I have to juggle this image, you know, the golden boy, you know, being the perfect father, being the perfect husband, being this, that. Wow. And then knowing that it's not true, that was exhausting. Your brother Joel told me, he's like, look, Oscar's a great liar. Um, how much would you keep your problems even from those closest to you, like your brother? Oh, nobody could, no, nobody could know of my problems. I mean, I, I, would, I would keep everybody away from, from what I was feeling. Um, I, I just knew how to hide it. Any type of feeling I was, you know, I was feeling. Um, I, I even knew how to lie to myself, you know? I would convince myself, no, this is right. How old were you when you first really started drinking? I must have been like 13, 14. I took my first drink when I was eight. Um, but um, yeah, around that age, uh, I knew how to hide it back then too. What about uh, when you first started using drugs regularly, and what was your drug of choice? You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, my thing was alcohol. Um, it wasn't regularly. Um, if it presented itself, you know, and then you're in amongst that, those people and the party and this and that. Yeah, of course, I, I did drugs. And that, that was what most surprised uh, your brother Joel and your friend Eric. They're like, you know, we knew about Oscar drinking, but when the pictures of you know, him doing cocaine surfaced online, that was, I mean, we just, we didn't know of Oscar doing the drugs. Yeah. This is a monster. This is a freaking monster, you know, that, that I'm dealing with. And, um, but it's okay. It's okay because... Um, you know, um, every time I go to sleep now, I get to reset that button, you know? And, and I know the next morning is a new day. A new day where I can prove to myself and prove to everyone around me, all my loved ones, not, not you, you, or you, or, no, to my loved ones, to my wife and to my kids. The people that matter. To my wife and kids that, you know what? Daddy's here. Daddy's present, you know? And, and that's what I do now, you know? 
that's what I do. We'll move forward on uh, that note. I wanted to talk to you about uh, business. How did it come about that you and Richard Schaefer started working together? Um, I remember his uh, nephew, who uh, who uh, we uh, who works for for Golden Boy Promotions. Um, he mentioned to me, look. Uh, there's this, uh, I, have, I have an uncle who is married to my aunt. Uh, you know, he's gonna be relocated to, to New York. Um, uh, he's, and he's a banker. And at the time I needed help because I had just, uh, I had just uh, finished a contract with a, a previous employee and uh, so I told him, yeah, let's, let's, let's sit down with him and uh, let's talk to him. What was involved with working with Richard to develop and create Golden Boy really into a business? If Golden Boy wanted something in, in the boxing industry, then Golden Boy's going to get. So we had a huge advantage. So, you know, you put your heads together. Okay, let's you know, put a business model together. Um, you know, we need a we need a, a coordinator. We need this. We need that. Um, you know, matchmakers to make the fights happen. We need fighters. Let's sign fighters. And the benefit you had too at the time is obviously, if you wanted to do business with an HBO or a Showtime at the time you're developing this boxing promotion business, right. you are at the peak of your career. Oh, I'm at the and peak so, of my so career. So you had leverage there. Huge too. leverage. Because if somebody said no to me, then, well, I'm sorry. What, what were the original goals and how have they evolved over time? Well, the original goals were to, to clean the sport, to, to, to help the fighter, to educate the fighter, to, um, to really increase the fighter's revenues. Um, to basically just be honest with the fighter, you know, and, 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 and let them know that, look, okay, you're gonna win this much. We, we have spreadsheets that we have for the fighters. You win this much, expenses, this, this, this is what you're gonna be left with, you know, and, um, and don't spend it all in one place, basically, right. you know, and um, that's worked out really well because, you know, we're, we're an honest company, we're a business. You know, we, we do everything by the book. Uh, the one thing that I am frustrated about is, um, you know, boxing is still a sport that, you know, it doesn't get the mainstream media attention. It doesn't, you know, there's too many champions in every weight division. Um, you always get bad decisions, which turns off the public, you right. know. Um, now, now, do you think the bad decisions are just that? Bad decisions, or do you think there's corruption there? I, with, with, I truly feel know. that the judges, um, maybe they make mistakes. Maybe they're just honest mistakes. Mm -hmm. But there, there's, there's too many mistakes like that. You know, I don't think there's corruption. Being involved and being a promoter now, I don't think there's corruption. I just think that the judges are making bad, bad decisions. Whether they're, I don't know, maybe they're influenced. Maybe uh, they're just watching a whole different fight. Who knows? Mm -hmm. But it hurts the sport. I mean, that's the bottom line. And um, we, don't, we don't really feel the, the impact that much because boxing is a very unique sport. I mean, if you get the best fighting, the best people are going to buy, people are going to sell, people are going to watch. You know, ratings are huge. Arenas are, are being filled up, are being sold out. Um, Pay-per-view is, is, is at its strongest point. I mean, boxing is a sport that, if done right, can be a, a, a competitor to the UFC, can be a competitor to the WWE or whatever sport is out there, you know, in terms of dollar value, in terms of money. The most satisfying moment from your boxing career would be what? For my whole boxing career would be standing on top of that podium, receiving that gold medal, um, listening to the national anthem 
beautiful, beautiful song. You know, you're just proud, just proud. It's amazing. It's 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 the most beautiful moment I will ever have in my boxing career, winning that gold medal. One random moment, and then a couple questions about the charity. Um, what would you say were your first 15 minutes of fame? My first 15 minutes of fame, I was, I was 12 years old, and I was training at the old resurrection gym where the high school is at now. And a photographer comes in, a uh, famous photographer here in, in East LA, you know, he's, he's like the guy. He, Photo, photographs all the famous fighters that come through here, through LA, and uh, so he walks in with his cameras and all, and we're kids just hitting the bag and jumping the rope, and and he yells out for my name. Is there an Oscar here? Uh, he looks at a little paper, an Oscar De La Hoya, and everybody's pointing at me. Ah, there he is, there he is. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, hi. Well, they sent me over to take your picture. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, uh, this, this newspaper called uh, La Opinion, The Opinion, Spanish newspaper. So uh, he tells me, okay, stand like a little fighter. You know, stand, stand in guard, get, get in guard. And I get in guard, you know. He's like, no, do it like a man. Come on, stand, stand like a fighter. You know, I'm like, okay. He's like, no. So he grabs my foot and puts it in place and puts my hand up here and, and uh, takes the picture. One picture, just one picture. The following uh, morning, uh, comes out in the newspaper, uh, local kid, Oscar De La Hoya, uh, wins national title, you know, out of East LA, you know. My eyes were closed. Um, my guard was down, my hand was up here, you know, and uh, that's when, that's when uh, my family kind of realized, you know, what, who I was, you know, the talent I possessed, you know, when I made that little section in the newspaper. So that was my. As mentioned, we had the opportunity earlier today uh, to visit your charter school as well as uh, the hospital, both of which have been uh, beneficiaries of, uh, you know, money that you've kindly donated uh, through the Oscar De La Hoya Foundation. What are you most proud of about the work? you've done through your charity? Just the fact that kids are graduating, that they have, that they have, that there's hope, you know, that they have an opportunity. Um, I mean, kids are going off to college from that school, you know, and they're, and they're proud to say that I graduated from the Oscar de la Hoya High School. Wow. You know, here I was thinking, okay, let me donate some money you know, because it's the right thing to do, you know. It's like, okay, you're going to help a few kids out. You're going you're gonna to get the recognition for it. You know, people are going to love you even more. They're going to respect you even more. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's what I was thinking back then. But now it's like, wow. You, you, it's like that school, those teachers, the principal, everybody who's involved is helping out and changing these, redirecting these kids' lives. It literally is redirecting these kids' lives, you know? Kids that growing up in East LA or Hollenbach, uh, uh, Boyle Heights, uh, you know, these kids, a lot of these kids just don't have that, they just don't have the, the drive, they don't have the, the inspiration, they don't have they just don't 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 feel motivated, you know. And these kids that are going through the high school, they're 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 inspired. They're inspired, and and I would like to think that I had something to do with it, just a little, tiny little bit, you know. It's very gratifying. It's it's it it, it really, it really um, it really does touch my heart. It really does because, I mean. A kid that goes through that high school, you know, who knows? If he didn't go through that high school, where would he be? You know, you, you think about that. I get many 
you know, emails and through Twitter and through Instagram and, you know, the social media. Oh, I graduated from your high school and now I'm an architect or now I'm a car, uh, I have my own carpenter shop and I've opened my own business and I'm like, wow, wow. It, it really, it really inspires me. It really does, you know, to, to keep going, to, to, don't, to don't give up, to don't, to don't stay on that ground, on that floor, you know, to just keep on fighting, keep on fighting. Thank you very much. This Thanks. has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you making the time to do this, spending the day with us and, uh, you know, being so open with your story. Thank you, appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my interview with Oscar De La Hoya. Watch him give me a tour of the LA Charter School and Cancer Treatment Center that he helped start at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And you can visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.